In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. All right, we'll continue with our hymn of the month. Um, So like I said, I'll I'll sing a, a portion of the first stanza, and then everyone... Proudly repeat, sing back, sing back the the same portion to me, and then we'll go through the hymn like that. All right. So this is may God bestow on us His grace. May God bestow on us His grace. May God bestow on us His grace. With blessings rich, provide us. And may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us. Sorry. (laughs) All right, and now let's uh, just join in the second and third stanzas together. Thine over all shall be the praise and thanks of every nation and all the world with joy shall raise the voice of exultation for thou shalt judge the earth O lord nor suffer sin to flourish thy people's pasture is thy word their souls to feed and nourish in righteous paths to keep them. Oh, let the 
people praise thy word in all good works increasing the land shall plenteous fruit bring forth thy word is rich in blessing make God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit bless us let all the world praise him alone. Let's all possess us. Now let our hearts say Amen. All right. Good deal. Let's continue with the uh, catechism. Uh, the table of duties of citizens. So we'll go right into the Bible memory work. It's Two verses, so uh, just say it together with me. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Matthew 22:21. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. Titus 3:1. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. On the uh, hymn of the month, so new hymn of the month, uh, thank you for bearing with me. I know I missed a few notes in the second half of the hymn, uh, but we will learn together as the blind lead the blind um, in the case of not having a piano in here so uh anyway about the hymn though it's a great hymn and uh the tune the tune really uh gets stuck in your head once you get it in your head um i this is one of those hymns i find myself humming a lot and singing a lot around the house especially the week after we sing it in church it just kind of gets it's a kind of a catchy tune it's actually a, a alternate tune it's a newer tune of what this hymn used to be paired to so in the sometimes in the hymnal they will put um, the like if there's two tunes that could work for a hymn that they think are both good sometimes they'll actually make it two hymns uh, and have both tunes as a, each a separate hymn with the same text in the hymnal so that's the case with this one you have 823 and 824 same text different tune you should. Uh, Thank me and and give me many gifts for not making you do the 
other tomb, which is the older one, but it's also very, very difficult. Um, it's uh, at least in my opinion, it's a difficult tune um, to sing. Um, May God bestow on us His grace with blessings rich provide us. It's very, it's very complicated. So anyway, we're not doing that one. Um, we're doing the catchy one, which is uh, written by a guy born in 1956, uh, copyright 2004. So. We're doing the 2004 tune, not the 1524 tune. Mm. Um, so. Who wrote that? So who wrote the tune is a guy named David Lee. The hymn is, which is what I was getting to before I got myself distracted with tunes, is uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote this hymn. Um, so Martin Luther actually wrote, I think, uh, I mean, obviously Luther is a great theologian. The problem with his theology is he says so much stuff. He's a, I mean, he writes like if you go to my office, there's the the set of Red Luther's works, um, and that's just a fraction of what he wrote in his life. I mean, he wrote tons and uh, lectured tons, and a lot of what he lectured was recorded uh, by writing, obviously. So Luther, as a theologian, is very hard to get a hold of, right? Uh, he's there's just so much there. But Luther was, a, a, in my opinion, a brilliant hymn writer. I mean, he wrote his, his poetry, his theological, which I think, I think a lot of times you can see poetry is great or hymns are great because you have to be concise, right? If you're, if you're writing a, a hymn, you have, to, you, you have to use your words wisely because you have a rhyme scheme you have to fit into. That's the beauty of poetry is that, that it forces you to say uh, what you really want to say succinctly and in specific language. So Luther wrote a lot of hymns, and I think his hymnody is just excellent. Um, So with this as an example, may God bestow on us his grace with blessings rich providedness, and may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us, that we his saving health may know his gracious will and pleasure and also to the nations show Christ's riches without measure, and unto God convert them. So this is his evangelism hymn. Um, this is in the mission section of the hymnal. And it's all about the, um, the making known of God's grace and mercy, right? The brightness of his face uh, that we, and it starts with us realizing these gifts that we have, but then to the nations showing and unto God converting them. Um, pray and and then um, yeah it's just there's so many good lines in here my favorite line is probably thy people's pasture is thy word their souls to feed and nourish and righteous paths to keep them so um, there's a we can talk more about the hymn itself later but Luther has an an excellent hymn right and on Reformation at the end of this month, so I picked a Luther hymn for the hymn of the month because it's October, Reformation month, so I thought it was fitting. Um, and then also there's a couple good mission texts in the lectionary this, this month, and we're singing this hymn uh, at one point during the month. I don't know when. I don't remember. But um, on Reformation, I picked uh, all Luther hymns this year. thought it would be fun so uh on reformation we're doing 
Um, dear Christians, one and all, rejoice, uh, which is the one, one of the really te- – it's ten stanzas, so we're doing part in the beginning of the service and part at the end of the service on Reformation. That's a Luther hymn about the God's plan of salvation. Starts with sin in the garden, ends up with Jesus risen, risen from the dead. Um, and then we're doing a mighty fortress in place of the psalm because as we've been doing these psalm singing things, psalm paraphrases, a mighty fortress, as I've said before recently, is a psalm paraphrase of Psalm 46. And then... Um, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word, which I really debated doing the old uh, – in the first English Lutheran hymnal, the Evangelical Lutheran hymn book, uh, which is older than even the TLH, which was – TLH was 1941. I think ELHB was like 1896. Anyway, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word, and ELHB is five stanzas, and the wording is a little bit different. Uh it's a, I think it's a more direct translation of Luther's original hymn. But um, in, in uh, what was that, 655? In, in the LSB, this is a complete side tangent, by the way. This says, I don't know why I'm talking about this exactly. Um, In, in, T, in LSB, it has, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by to see their sword would wrest the kingdom from your son. In uh, ELHB, he specifically says, it's not those who would wrest the kingdom from your son. It's, Lord, preserve us from thy pope and Turk. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> which is great, right? I mean, because in Luther's day, what were the threats to the gospel? The Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, and the invading Muslims, the Turk. So uh, I thought about using that version, <laughs> but it's it's the the language is nicer. I mean, say what you will about uh, you know King James English or Elizabethan English or whatever, but these and nows sound better sung than you, right? Ooh is not a pleasant sound, but thee and thou is a pleasant sound. So um, anyway, I like older translation of hymns for that reason, but whatever. We are where we are in history, and it's all good. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're doing that. Mighty Fortress, Lord keep us steadfast in that word. And then um, the Luther communion hymn for distribution, 617. Uh Oh, Lord, have mercy. Whatever. I can't ever remember the name of the, two, of the hymn. Um, anyway, we're doing all those, so that'll be fun. Um, so we're getting a lot of Luther hymns this month, and Luther is just a great hymn writer. His, he's, he's very good with language. So um, anyway, that's all I got to say about the, the hymn. Um, yeah, and... and it does show you hymns can go to different tunes as well, which we'll also see, which we've seen with these psalms, um, and which we're doing with uh, Jesus, Thy Boundless Love to Me today. We're using an alternate tune. So uh, that'll be in the service. That's the tune we're doing for – that's the older tune for Jesus, Thy Boundless Love to Me instead of the one in our hymnal. So, um, All right.
What was I going to talk about next? The catechism uh, of citizens. So this is continuing what Bible verses go along with the relationship of government and citizens. And we got two verses today because they're short. Uh, the first one's really easy. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Everyone kind of knows that verse already. So memorizing, it's easy if you already have it memorized. You just got to memorize where it is. Matthew 22, 21. Uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then Titus 3. Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. So in both of these verses, what I am constantly urging people to remember about being a citizen of the government, the Bible is like what's obvious in the biblical text is that we need to obey, right? We need to submit to the governing authorities. That's that's obvious. Um, that that's Paul's main point in Romans 13, that the government is for our good and that we should submit. Um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities to be obedient. Right. That that basic idea that we should um, be law abiding citizens, let's say. Clearly biblical idea. What is not so obvious is the nuance that is always present, I think, in those texts. And then what is obvious in other texts that aren't always quoted as texts for citizens, right? So um, here we will think, give to Caesar, in the context of that passage in Matthew 22, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, that Jesus is saying, and this is true, that you know uh, the, that you should pay tax. It's okay to pay taxes. What we tend to forget about is that he also says, "Give to God what is God's," <laughs> and that that is equally important. And to give to God what is God's is to give God everything. And as the apostles will say in Acts chapter five, when they're being persecuted by the government, we must obey God rather than men. Right. So the God, giving to God what is God's trumps giving to Caesar what is Caesar's in certain circumstances. Um, so that nuance that that we also must obey God rather than men is is there uh, implicit in what Jesus says. Also, um, Titus three one, that last line to be ready to do whatever is good. Now, sometimes what is good is not obeying the government. Right. And so we always have to keep that in mind that um, whatever is good may be obeying the government. Maybe it won't be right. So we should be obedient insofar as we can. But the, the kind of ultimate goal is to be ready to do whatever is good. And uh, this this is mainly just to give a defense of civil disobedience in certain circumstances or really rather, instead of giving a defense of civil disobedience, I think a better way to think of it is that we should not pay blind obedience to the government, right? We should not pay blind obedience. Um, and that's why I'm saying we need to not be – we need to not ignore the nuances in these different texts that talk about how Christians should relate to the government because if – we ignore that, 
then we might end up in a position where we're blindly obeying man over God. Um, so with, I, I, you know, I saw this happen in some churches with COVID lockdowns, you know, for a time when no one knew what was going on, really, that all made sense. But when there were churches that were shut down for two years straight, refusing to worship because, well, the government says it's not. And especially when it was even just like a uh, like a suggestion by the government, you know, like it was not even a, a law. But then churches were like, well, the government says that's what's for our good. And so uh, we're just going to stay shut down. I think that was an example of. Uh, some Christians blindly obeying whenever that really might not have been what was best. I mean, Christians at the end of the day need to worship. Um, and church is essential, at least as essential as Taco Bell, which got to stay open, right? So um, so anyhow, I think um, we, we just need to be careful that we're not, you know, blindly obeying when um, – and then like I've talked about before too – you also have to take into account what the government actually is that's been given to you, right? And in the United States, um, the executive branch is not supposed to just rain down orders <laughs> onto the people, right? It's supposed to be a representation government, which um, that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. But all right. Um, all right. Uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. Amos. That's what we're doing. Okay, so last week we started talking about Amos, and Amos is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's from the southern kingdom, uh, moves to the northern kingdom to prophesy there. Remember, he's a uh, shepherd, so he's kind of this David figure, this Christ figure, in that he is a uh, not he's not raised as a prophet, right? He's not like Elijah. Uh, Elisha, he's not raised as as a one of these prophets. Um, he's not like, although Moses, actually Moses was a shepherd, right? If you remember um, back in Exodus, whenever Moses runs away after killing the Egyptian, he goes and he shepherds Jethro's flocks. So um, Moses actually was a shepherd, but but he's but Moses, you know, is basically raised to be a prophet. Um, Elisha, Elijah, they're raised to be prophets. Obadiah is raised to be a prophet, right? He's in the school of the prophets. Amos is not. Amos gets called out from the fields to go to the northern kingdom, and he has this vision, and that's the whole book. That's his one vision. He's a you know one and done deal prophet, and um, he lives. A, he's a border. He lives on the border, and that's how come he ends up going into the the northern kingdom. Um, that's what God God uses him for. Uh, and there was this issue in uh, 1 verse 1 where we find out about him being a shepherd and being from the border village and everything. Is that he has this vision when he says two years before the earthquake, which we don't know what that earthquake is exactly. Uh, Josephus says that it references when um, King Uzziah went into the temple and uh, tore down things in the temple. Um other theologians and interpreters have said that it was a literal earthquake, which we know were somewhat common in the near Middle East. 
at that time. Um, so regardless, the point that he says about that earthquake is that he said he he records this two years before it happens, and then two years later, whenever whatever this earthquake is happens, then everyone knows that he was true, right? The prophets are are true; they attest to themselves. Um, okay, yeah, we talked about all that. Okay, then uh, just as further review, uh, three sections in the book. Um, chapter one is uh, prophecies against other nations. And then two through six is against Israel, prophecies against Israel. And then seven through, it's nine, right? Yeah, nine um, is the vision of the downfall of Israel. And this is going to be interesting when we get to Hosea next. I don't know if we'll get there today. Probably not. Um, that Hosea also is a prophet against Israel, who prophesies against Israel. But Hosea is going to end with a vision of hope, where Amos ends with a vision of destruction. So very interesting contrast. Amos and Hosea, the two minor prophets that primarily are the ones who prophesy against Israel, uh, that Amos only gets to the Assyrian captivity. Hosea goes beyond the Assyrian captivity to the return from captivity and ultimately the coming of Christ. So a very, very interesting contrast. Within the book of Amos, however, the contrast is very clear that one chapter is spent prophesying against the surrounding nations, which are evil. Right? They worship the Canaanite gods. They worship Baal. They're, they're evil nations. Um, he even prophesies a paragraph against Judah, his home nation, who holds out in faithfulness a little bit longer than Israel. But he, he does spend a chapter doing that. But then the rest of the book is basically hard law applied to Israel. Now, there is... In chapter 5, kind of in here, uh, mixed in, is this message of life. And the uh, message there is repent and turn to the Lord and and live. That's in chapter 5. So there's this message of life, and then also um, in chapter 5, but also throughout the book and in the end of the book, there is... A theology of the remnant that that the gospel in the book of Amos is that there's a chance for life if you turn your life around, repent, turn from your evil ways and live. And then there is a theology of the remnant, which is that there will be a few people. There will be some who will stay faithful and will survive the captivity of the Assyrians, God's people will survive as a people, and that even after the Assyrian captivity, the remnant will remain. The remnant will remain. There will be a faithful remnant. So you can remember how Elijah feels like at some point there's not going to be anyone left that believes 
and God says, I have made for you a faithful remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, so that same kind of theology is present here in the book of Amos. Okay, I think that concludes our review. Um, what we left off on then is that we want to um, look at a couple passages here that show, uh, that highlight uh, some of the kind of these sections and divisions. We don't have time to go verse by verse through the whole book, um, but we'll look at some passages. So if you open up to Amos, which is uh, between Joel and Obadiah in the back of the Old Testament. Just look at a couple passages here, highlight passages. All right, so we already talked about 1-1. So we'll look at 1-3 first, which is a prophecy against Damascus, one of the surrounding nations. And Amos has a kind of poetic structure to the prophecies against against the nations where he starts off the same way every time. And he says, For three transgressions, of nation, Damascus, Judah, Israel, whatever. For three transgressions of Damascus, or for four, dot, 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 prophecy against the nation. Um, I will not turn away. So, well, the next part's important too. Um, For three transgressions of Damascus or for four, I will not turn away its punishments. I will not turn away its punishments. In other words, I will punish them. Now, what does this mean uh, in these prophecies against the nations? It means that they've committed three transgressions, but in fact, they've probably committed more, right? So uh, he's describing here that the, the fullness of the wickedness that these nations have committed, that they've all committed um, plenty of transgressions, enough transgressions to warrant the Lord's punishment, which really how many is enough to warrant the, word, the Lord's punishment? How many transgressions? One, One. right? Um, even one transgression of the Lord's law is enough to warrant his punishment. You break one commandment, you break them all, right? If you break any commandment, then you are saying to the Lord, I know better than you know, right? You're breaking the first commandment. You're breaking all of the commandments. Break one, you break them all. Um, So when he says there's been three transgressions, actually four, it's a poetic, prophetic way to say that there is a fullness of, uh, that there's a tipping point, right? So um, it is – Amos is not the book of – so the Psalms and, and other parts of Scripture are full of this kind of Old Testament refrain, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in, in steadfast love. Um, I think the KJV, like the old translation, is, is actually just mercy, abounding in mercy. Is that right? Um Anyway, the, the word in, in Hebrew is kind of a um, 
interesting word. It, the word for steadfast love is this is a tangent, but is the way the way it's pronounced is kesed, kesed. So you might hear some theologians say that sometime. Slow to anger, abounding in kesed. Kesed is uh, it's the idea of the covenant. It's uh, covenant faithfulness, covenant mercy, right? That the Lord um, has has mercy on His people. And it's this um, – if you think about like uh, the different loves in the New Testament, so you have like Philadelphia is like brotherly love, right? Um, Philo love. You have uh, the um, eros, which is uh, the romantic love, and you have agape, which is that, that covenant, that deep, intimate, um, that, that kind of – God to His people, kind of love. That that's this is the Old Testament word for agape, right? This is um, anyway. Uh, it's the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love, the the abiding mercy. So anyway, Jesus or God is, and and Jesus obviously is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amos is saying just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean he doesn't get angry sometimes, right? That at some point there is a Tipping point, and his wrath is real. His wrath does actually punish sin eventually. And so this reminds us then, so he was slow to anger, right? He didn't, he didn't come on the first transgression and wipe out the nation. He could have. Instead, he was slow. There's been three. There's been four. The transgressions keep coming, right? This, this is like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, right? You remember what Abraham says to God what he does with God. He says, what if there are 30 people left? What if there are 100 people left that are faithful in Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says, if there, if there are that many faithful people, I won't destroy it, right? Um, what if there's 50? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? It goes on and on. And um, eventually, all that's left is um, Lot's, family. Lot, Lot's family. Thank you. Yeah, I just... I lost the word lot for a second in my head. Um, Abra- yeah, Abraham's uh, lot and his family. And so lot and his family escape, but then the nation is destroyed, right? It is destroyed for its unfaithfulness because there are – the transgressions have come and come and come, and there are no faithful people left. And so um, this is the same kind of idea that – that there is a time when God's wrath will come. And then we take that and say, okay, that that's for every one of these surrounding nations. But then that's just one chapter with paragraphs. Let's see, you got um, you know, Damascus, we got uh, Gaza, we got Tyre, we have Edom, uh, we have A- Ammon. Um, then chapter two, we got Moab and then Judah. Okay, so we got what five or six, whatever that was, different uh, prophecies against other nations, each about a paragraph. <clears throat> then we're gonna get basically two, three, four, five, six, five chapters straight of the prophecy against Israel, right? And he begins the same way. Um, for three transgressions of Israel, for four, this is verse. Two verse six. Uh, I will not turn away its punishment because, um, and then he's just going to go into the the different 
all the different things that they've done, they, how they've been unjust. It's interesting. One of the things in Amos that they really that he hammers away at is their injustice, right? Their their system of injustice. So obviously, the Baal worship is a problem, right? When you're sacrificing children on the altar of Baal, that's a problem. But uh, one of the things he says is that they don't take care of the poor, right? They're they're unjust people. They're they're unmerciful people. Um, they they sell right. The righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. It's the very first thing he goes after. So uh, that's a pretty interesting aspect that the nation is judged for being unmerciful and unjust. All right. So what's what's next? So we did uh, two. Yeah, two verse. Um, yeah, I was going to look at two verses six to sixteen, which is part of the judgment against Israel. Um, but yeah, you get the point that they. Uh, They've deserted the Lord, so another thing he goes after here is that there's uh, supposed to be you, – you know about the Nazarite vow, right, with um, – who is that, Samson um, in, in Judges that there's this in – the old, in the Old Covenant, there's a Nazarite vow that young men can take that they um, – can you know promise not to cut their hair, not to drink any alcohol, and not to touch any dead bodies, and it's a covenant between them and the Lord as a sign of their faithfulness. Well, um, he says there's some Nazarites among you, but what did what did the nation do for the Nazarites? Did they help them in their faithfulness to the Lord? No, they gave them wine to drink, right? And they haven't taken care of the prophets, and uh, they've. So they've they've done all these things, right? He's going to go through transgression after transgression, that they have not been faithful, um, and there is going to be a punishment that's coming. So, if you look at like verses 14 to 16, there, um, he starts to prophesy the punishment. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift; the strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow; the swift of foot shall not escape, nor Shall he who rides a horse deliver himself? The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. So even the the mighty men, even the big warriors, the mighty army men, they're not going to be able to handle what's coming. And what's coming is that the Assyrians are going to come and take them captive as part of the Lord's punishment. And they're not going to be able to fight back, he's saying, right? The, the men who have the bows and arrows are not going to be able to pull the bow back. And the, the, the most mighty fighting men are going to run away naked. <laughs> um, naked and afraid. That's a TV show, right? I don't know. Yeah. I've never watched it. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. All right, so then let's uh, flip over to chapter 5. Look at the central gospel passage here um, where, where we get – um, a message that is at least kind of the most gospelly sounding thing you can get in the book of Amos. And um, verses 4 through 17 is, is really where we want to look. It's kind of a long passage there. But uh, the, a call to, so he's got this call to repentance. He's been spending – so at the beginning of chapter 5, he kind of reaches this climax of the – prophecy against them it's a lament right where he's literally lamenting or 
uh, cry, crying almost over the the punishment with which Israel is going to have to be punished. Um, here, this word of the Lord, which I take up, a lamentation, O house of Israel. And um, so like verse 3, for thus says the Lord, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left in the house of Israel. So he's saying, you know, you're going to be... Decimated. Yeah, decimated a hundredfold, right? Or ten, uh, at least, yeah, at least tenfold. That you're um, only the remnant is only going to be like what ten percent of the people are going to survive um, and not be taken captive. So he's lamenting over this. So it's this big climax of the prophecy against them. But then he says he's got this kind of message of hope, a call to repentance. For thus says the Lord, the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, which is remember remember Bethel. That's interesting. Bethel was um, where was Israel supposed to worship before the divided kingdom? Temple. The temple. Where's the temple at? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Right, Jerusalem. Then, when the kingdom is divided, the northern kingdom, the Israelites, don't want to go down to Judah because they're prideful. And they don't want to worship with their brothers, with the other tribes. And so they establish two temples, uh, one in Bethel and one in – is the other in Gilgal? Where, where's the other one at? Samaria. Samaria. Thank you. It is in Samaria, the, the new capital city. Uh, one's in the north, one's in the south so that people can go to them. And what do they put there? Golden calves, <laughs> right? They reinstitute golden calf worship. So uh, when Amos here says this is this is very loaded, right? Do not go do, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. He's saying don't seek this corrupted version of Christianity, let's say, but seek me and live, right? Seek the Lord and live. Do not enter Gilgal. Do not pass over. Pass over Beersheba, um, for these places are going to go into captivity. They're going to come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Right. This is repeated over and over again throughout this passage. Um, verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. Right. So he's saying, look, basically there's – this is uh, the ancient Christian document from the early church, the Didache. Um, are you familiar with this? So there's a – very, very early document from the early Christian church uh, called the Didache, probably published while like John was still alive. Uh, very, very early Christian document. And um, it's one of these documents that was the church considered making it scripture. Um, or call, like was, did, was not sure if it was not actually inspired. So it's very, very well attested to, let's say. Anyway, the Didache is – it's basically a church manual. So it says stuff – it does stuff like um, like kind of how to do a baptism um, and things like that. But it starts off with the phrase, there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And uh, that's, that's basically it, right? <laughs> there's the way of life and the way of death. And that's what Amos is saying here. There's, there's the way of life. Seeking the Lord and living, or there's the way of death, going the way of idolatry. 
uh, which is it going to be? So, uh, verse five or chapter five is great for all of this. Right. All right. Um, then chapter nine. We'll flip over to chapter nine. So, after uh, the finishing of the prophecy against Israel, then we get uh, chapter nine. So the first part of chapter nine is part of. So chapter seven and nine is this whole vision of the downfall of um, Israel. In chapter nine, we get the vision of really the Assyrian captivity. Um, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, "Strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away." He's talking about the Syrians there. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Although they don't know it's the Assyrian Empire at this point, right? I mean, you, they could probably guess, but um, you remember Amos is not that far away from when the captivity happens. And if you remember when we went through the kings, at some point the kings really started to barter and trade with the Assyrians for safety. So you can kind of guess what's going to happen. But um, he doesn't say here Assyria. He just says, you know, them. They're going to get you, right? They're going to take you into captivity. So, um, yeah, that first uh, 10 verses or so there, we get the that they're going to be overtaken um, by, by this people. Uh, verse 9, for surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the centers of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. So those who think that it's that they're going to be able to fight are going to die by the sword, right? As the nation is sifted like grain through a sieve. And again, you get that within that. Notice you still get that remnant theology. Right? There will be some that aren't that are that do when you sift, right, the the, the pure is left behind. Um, what you're looking for is left behind in the sieve, in the in the strainer, right? So it's like you're making pasta and you drain out all the water. Um, or something like that. Actually I guess flour would be better since that's what she says. Um, all right. Then uh, finally, uh, verse. So then we get this. We get this. The the faithful remnant. And at, so I, I did misspeak a little bit earlier because I said Hosea ends with the vision of hope and the return from captivity, and Amos doesn't. Amos doesn't primarily, but in fact he does devote four verses to it. Hosea, there's a whole section devoted to the return from captivity. Amos only. Uh, gives four verses all of hosea is really about hosea is the opposite side of this so hosea amos is the anger side of um that 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 god actually reaches the anger point hosea is all about god abounding in steadfast love and so we'll look at that whenever we we get there but um just to kind of keep that in mind as we're going to do hosea next but yeah, verses 11 to 15 in Amos 9, uh, this is the vision of the remnant surviving and the return, the faithful returning from captivity back to home. So on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. So um, and notice there he's talking to Israel, but he's he's saying 
that it's the temple of David that's going to be lifted up and restored. So uh, in the return to captivity, the divided kingdom is again united. Right. So at some point we'll look at Ezra and Nehemiah, which is the the two uh, books of the Bible that deal with the return from the captivity. And and we'll see what happens there. But the tabernacle of David's going to be rebuilt uh, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So now we're looking not only ahead um, at the return from captivity for the Jews, for the second temple, but we're even looking ahead to the Gentile mission, right? We're looking ahead to the coming of Christ because now the Gentiles who call by my name are also going to be included in this remnant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So this is really an eschatological vision, that is an end times vision, that um, whenever you're talking about the return from captivity, you're also talking about the um, return from our captivity on earth to our heavenly home. And uh, this is a very similar vision that a lot of the prophets give, that heaven is like this abundant land, right? It's the new Eden. So the mountains are dripping with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back my captives from my uh, of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. Right. So they're going to this is an image of dominion, which is what the Israelites were originally given to do when they went into the promised land was have dominion. It's what Adam was given to do at the beginning of creation was to have dominion over the earth. Um so we're, we're going to have dominion one day. We're going to inhabit all the other cities um, and plant vineyards, drink wine from them, make gardens, eat fruit from them, plant their land. No longer shall they be pulled up from the land I've given them, says the Lord God. So that vision of complete restoration. Any questions on the book of Amos? All right. Well, I guess we're done. <laughs> any, any final comments, questions? All right. Um, let's – what time is it? All right. I'm done one minute early. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We also know that any transgression of your law is deserving of your wrath. We pray that you would grant us repentant hearts, that we would seek you and live. And we long for the day when your son will return again, that we would have dominion in the new heavens and the new earth, that he would be our king, and that we would live in eternal paradise with you. We pray all of this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.